you look at what DeSantis has done in Florida, going from a one-point winner to a 20-point winner, and you look at what Trump has done, going from backing into the presidency by losing the popular vote and sort of going downhill from there, you, you can understand how a discerning primary voter might say, well, uh, I see the next lily pad and it looks like more, uh, you know, more stable ground. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And I am Scott Jennings. Thanks for joining us on the post-election version of Flyover Country alongside Kevin Grout, Sean Southern, Jared Crawford, and the Virginia ham himself. Joe Arnold <laughs> is on Zoom tonight, live from just outside of our nation's in- capital. Usually you're in the nation's capital, and we're all back in the studio, and I decided to, uh, to take your place here tonight, and they're all saying, that's great, Joe. We're, 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 looking, <laughs> we're looking at a – we have a screen of Joe Arnold, and he's, like, tucked into his hotel bed. He's got – Very cozy. A nice he's vest. Covers. He's, got, he's wearing a vest, but he also sort of is, like, up against the pillows. He may fall asleep halfway through the show tonight. That's a comfy the first setup time. you got there. <laughs> You know something? It, it is a comfy setup. I'll say that. <laughs> I am in Arlington, Virginia. It's a lovely night. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of this esteemed podcast. Well, thank you for being here, and thanks to everyone who's uh, followed along with the Flower Country pod. We did not record a podcast uh, last week in the direct aftermath of the midterms. I was stuck on CNN, really, for the better part of all of last week. I was started my... Uh, election coverage in Washington, and then I traveled to New York, and I really had some really long days uh, at Hudson Yards on CNN. One day, in fact, uh, uh, Thursday, I think it was, I walked into the building at 5.30 a.m. and didn't walk out until 12.30 the next morning. It was a lot of TV. I was So I was on the, the main uh, election night in America panel with Anderson Cooper, so I would go out to the set uh, from the first night, election night was 6 to 2 a.m., and then we did it till midnight um, uh, the rest of the nights. And then a couple of times I had to stay late and do a CNN international appearance and talk to the people uh, around the world. And uh, I did a lot of other media last week, did a lot of uh, podcasts. In fact, I think, Jared, we uploaded into the to the stream uh, the Newsworthy podcast yes, that yep. I did with Erica Manny, who, which, by the way, if you haven't subscribed to the Newsworthy, I would encourage it. She does a really terrific job. She puts out an episode every week, and I've been on a few times, and, and she's done great. And then... Um, I flew back to Kentucky on Saturday morning, mercifully, finally got back to Kentucky and almost had to turn around and fly back to Washington, but we worked it out and I sat in here on Saturday night. My dad uh, came to visit and he sat with me and hung out with me from 7 to midnight while we did more election coverage. I had the day off Sunday and then today is Monday night and I just did a couple of hours with Anderson Cooper as we watch the final votes come in from Maricopa County in Arizona. And as we record this podcast, the big breaking news tonight is that Katie Hobbs has been elected governor of Arizona. And at the same time, we had uh, information coming in from various sources about house races being called. And it looks like at this point, I think we can definitively state that the Republican Party will win a majority in the House. What's not clear is what the final number is going to be, but the Republicans uh, will win a slim majority in the House. Joe Arnold, your comments on tonight's news. 
I have to just say one thing, and because uh, it's and, and the danger of being labeled a conspiracy theorist or a election denier, or starting all those off hot. Things, <laughs> yeah. Well, because I know we're going to get into the actual, you know, the votes and and how it all shook out. But before we get there, this is how embarrassing Arizona is, and 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 and, and we should not have to wait this long for votes to be counted. Now, I'm just saying is I don't I don't suspect any hijinks. I'm not saying that anything was rigged. I'm just saying is the law that they passed out there that that takes this freaking long for the entire nation to be waiting for all this is ridiculous. Let me ask I mean, you. Let me ask you a question. What do you yeah. hate more? How long it takes Arizona to count their ballots or the designated hitter? Because I <laughs> get the same vibe from you on both fronts. Which is worse yeah, for because, America? Well, I guess I'm a traditionalist on both fronts, and I believe I'm. I'm 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 sort of like with 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 Sean here in the Baltimore Catechism, you know. I'm 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 talking about, you know, the 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 one true church and just sticking to the dogma. I'm just saying there are standards and there are rules in place. For the a dogma reason. lives loudly within you, Joe. I, I can say <laughs> that is. for sure. Well, what, anyway, what are the what, I'm saying, no, what, what you're complaining about? What you're complaining about, really? And I agree with you. I don't see any any hijinks here. But when something takes this long. It causes people to wonder. But what we're really talking about is the advent of the use of the mail to cast ballots in the United States of America. It's become more and more popular. They use it a lot in these western states. And that's what takes forever to count. Now, they also have this system where you can drop off ballots. So if you've gotten one in the mail, you can come and and drop it off in a drop box. Here in Kentucky, in a lot of states back east, that haven't adopted such robust uh, things we're, we're not used to counting ballots for days and days and days, but it's it's really a question of voting by mail because if you wanted to do this all on election night, you'd cut out all the early voting and all the vote by mail, and you'd just have it all on election day, and then you'd know on election night. Kevin Grout, I'll, I'll go to you. To Joe's question, what would be better, to go back to an all-election day election or to keep doing it the way we're doing it? Well, I mean, if you're Arizona, it's a very educational experience for the rest of the country because we're all learning where all these counties in Arizona are. Yeah. Uh, nobody had to learn where um, Elliott County, Kentucky was unless you were looking at that sheriff's race. Did that uh, sheriff win, by the way? I, I didn't need to look that up. <laughs> Ryan Corals would be mad at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's definitely part of the tradition out there. I think Colorado has been doing it for a long time. They're almost all mail-in out there, but they seem to get it a lot faster. Um, so th- this seems like a crazy system. Joe's right, and uh, I think it's rife for new legislation to bring it, bring it down, bring it back to reality a little bit. On this front, by the way, I believe uh, I have lined up for next week's Thanksgiving show. I'm going to give you guys the week off, and I am going to bring on the show, unless you guys want to be part of it. I, I am going to bring on the show Kentucky Secretary of State Mike Adams, my old college roommate, my old friend, uh, who's going to talk about election administration, how he thought the election went in Kentucky from an administrative perspective. But I'm going to ask him a lot of questions, Joe, to your to your point about why is it these states have these rules? Does he have ideas on how it could be improved? Does he communicate with other secretaries of state about best practices that could change this in the future? Because I think Mike has sort of set himself apart here as a true expert on efficient administration of election. And they've had transition because when he started, Kentucky had virtually no early voting, no voting mm-hmm. by mail. He's transitioned us to a little bit of a system where we've got some early voting. And it seems to have not slowed down our election night 
counting at all, right, Sean? No, absolutely. Uh, that's 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 correct. And I actually think that a lot of people, voters, have confidence in early in-person vote. As long as it's you know not weeks and weeks and weeks on end, I think a, a few extra days here and there make it more, more convenient for people. I do think that uh, the mail-in vote does make some people feel uncomfortable. That you know Newman from Seinfeld's out there making sure ballots get the right <laughs> place or or not. Uh, but Joe, I, I saw your hand raised there. Now you're shaking your head. Uh, if you've got something you want to throw in there, big Newman fan. Oh well, well Scott's playing with too. I was just going to say, well, I guess there's there's two things. First of all, I'm just annoyed by the people who are lecturing me on TV saying this is normal. This is normal. It's not. No, it's not normal. It's not normal to wait a week and a half for an election result in a in a small, relatively small state. So get over it. You know, I, um, I mean, to me, uh, <laughs> you tell them, Joe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that point and use it to transition into our first big political topic of the night because right. a much, much larger state that has all kinds of voting that manages to count all their votes in a relatively timely fashion on election night is. The Sunshine State, the state of Florida, the lone bright spot, I think, one of the lone bright spots for the Republican Party nationally, where Governor Ron DeSantis romped over Charlie Crist by nearly 20 points. He flipped Miami-Dade. He had Hispanics going his way. He had suburban voters going his way. He had rural voters. He had blue-collar. He had white-collar. He put together in the state of Florida, which, by the way, for, for I've been in politics now for over 20 years. Joe, you've been in part of it, covering it, whatever, for, for longer than me even. We've always thought of Florida as a purple state. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a, a toss-up state. This is a state that could go either way in a presidential. This is a state both campaigns are fighting for. And it looks to me like Ron DeSantis has turned Florida into a solidly red state. Kevin? And it wasn't just his win he brought everybody with him yeah. he brought marco rubio with him by bigger margins than he won last time and i think majorities in the legislature i think every statewide officer uh the republicans won they won up and down the ballot and i think it's a testament to the organization that he built the message that he campaigned on and this great great uh enthusiasm that he brought to the state so coming out of this uh race sean in florida a lot of people are talking about ron DeSantis as a potential national candidate and to be fair some people were talking about it before this midterm Mm -hmm. but his crushing victory seems to have catapulted him into another zone as a national leader in fact today i read that wyoming senator cynthia lummis said that she considered ron DeSantis at this point to be the leader of the national republican party what are your observations of him you're a younger uh republican than me you've come along uh, you know, a little bit later uh, in the process. I, you know, I'm looking at this over a long period of time. For you, DeSantis, um, you know, just given where you come from as a as a young Republican, what's your view of him? And, and do you think he has the kind of appeal that could bring in both older and younger Republicans? I, I think that he can. I think that for a, a long period of time, you've seen a lot of young Republicans gravitate towards DeSantis as being the, the future of the Republican Party. Uh, and I think that you've seen a little bit of a, a uh, the gra- the pull towards him is that the center of gravity is with Ron DeSantis within the Re- Republican Party. And I think that uh, after election night, and you see the coalition that he built presents a national model for Republicans to work on. Uh, I mean, his political instincts have been right from the beginning, all the way through COVID, all the way through the parental rights stuff. I mean, he, he has b- been there. And I think that uh, one of the problems that Donald Trump may have going forward is that a lot of Republicans are look at these battles that have occurred over the course of uh, since 2020 and see who's been the hero for the last, you know, three or four years. It's been Ron DeSantis because he's been in office and been able to deliver on policy victories for Republicans. DeSantis has, I think, shown Republicans the next lily pad. 
You know, I think for a long time it was hard to visualize what is life after Trump look like? You know, who is the next person? You know, there's all these sorts of questions about, well, would Trump ever even endorse a successor? You know, would, it, would he ever even want somebody mm-hmm. else to follow him as a Republican? And I think because of that, it was hard for people to imagine what does come next. But after this election, what I'm hearing, and I'm, I'm hearing from all over the country, you know, I, I was on TV all week getting text messages from people all over, is that there is a sense that Trump took the Republican Party as far as he can. You know, he can get you to a certain place. And the candidates who most closely align themselves with him can get you to a certain place, like Carrie Lake in Arizona. She ran, by the way, against a terrible candidate. Let's be honest. Katie yeah. Hobbs, terrible candidate, couldn't even stand to be in the same room as mm-hmm. Carrie Lake. I mean, she essentially was a non-entity. And the whole thing was really just a referendum on whether a Trump acolyte could get elected governor of Arizona, which, by the way, four years ago elected Doug Ducey by like 14 points. Right. So they're used to voting for Republicans out there. So the question in Arizona was not Hobbs and Lake. It was, can a Trump-style Republican get you all the way in a state that has a lot of independent voters? And we learned the answer, that you can't. So when people, I think, Joe and Kevin and Jared, look at DeSantis and they see this coalition that he put together, they say, Maybe we can get back to a world where we have some expectation that we could win a national election. It's not been since 2004 that Republicans won the national popular vote in a presidential year, although it does look like Republicans will slightly get more votes this year than Democrats in the national House vote. We can talk about distribution of votes later if you want. But if the two guys, Kevin, Joe, you look at what DeSantis has done in Florida, going from a one-point winner to a 20-point winner, and you look at what Trump has done, going from backing into the presidency by losing the popular vote and sort of going downhill from there, you you can understand how a discerning primary voter might say, well, uh, I see the next lily pad, and it looks like more... uh, you know, more stable ground. Yeah, I think DeSantis brings all the things that Trump says he would bring to it. He is a winner. He's got that record of not only political accomplishments, but, you know, Sean touched on some of these policy accomplishments. And now that he's got these super majorities in the legislature, I think he's going to just be cranking out these good conservative policies up and down, um, you know, when, when they start meeting next year. So I think he has what Trump wanted to be or what sold himself as as a real winner. Joe Arnold. Four years ago, Ron DeSantis lost Miami-Dade County by 20 points in 2018. He won it by 11 in the election last week. So you're talking about a a turnaround there, which has to do, and I think back, Scott, about when, when Mitt Romney lost the presidential election in 2012 and the big autopsy that was done on the Republican Party and the future and everything else. Uh, you know, Donald Trump was this disruptor and kind of <laughs> off of maybe the overall trajectory of the party. But the overall trajectory of the party, regardless of the results in the midterm election, is showing a much more diverse big tent party of far more racially diverse uh, candidates, very talented candidates overall in, in that regard. And I think you're seeing you know, the only way for the party to grow and be successful in the future is to embrace that. I know that was something which, uh, Scott, you and uh, former Obama's uh, uh, campaign guys, Jim Messina, got into this on CNN about the whole trajectory of all that. But the point of it is, and you're, you were exactly right on CNN that night, was that if you look at the overall split and the Republican Party broadening that tent, it is working. Now, it didn't work last week. 
But that's the only way for the Republican Party to remain relevant going forward is to be a truly big tent. Well, I, I think although the Republicans had what most people are feeling like was a disappointing night, there are some little nuggets in there that you could take away if you're looking for something positive. The, the party did do, like I think that, that night I said, Republicans are going to do somewhat better with Hispanics. That was basically my point. I've been saying it for months. And they did. Republicans did somewhat better with Hispanics nationally. They did a lot better with Hispanics in Florida. And it did translate into a few wins here and there. And it translated into a few close races here and there. To the point of diversity, Jared and Kevin, we get you guys in here. You know, I, we were talking about Carrie Lake tonight on CNN before I came over here. And I was recalling on the air the story that I read about of her going to the event and asking the crowd, are there any John McCain Republicans here? Mm. And a couple of people raised their hand and she said, well, get the hell out of here. And that really, in a nutshell, is the Trump brand of politics, which is to say this political party needs to be as small as we want it to be, (laughs) as opposed to everyone else's idea of party politics, which is let's make it as big as we can. So to your point, Joe, DeSantis has made the Republican Party in Florida bigger than anyone could have ever imagined, given the mass appeal across all kinds of demographics and and types. The Kerry Lake model was to try to kick people out, and I think that's Trump's impulse as well, and it leads me to a question. What is the purpose of a political party? Because I think for Ron DeSantis, it's obvious he thinks the purpose is for it to win elections, but I think for Trump and Kerry Lake and others, the purpose of the party is just to grind axes and grind cultural grievances and that the winning of elections is secondary to making sure that no one they dislike is allowed into the club. That's number one, and then we'll worry about elections second. And for DeSantis, it seems to be the opposite. And I really do think that's the coming clash in the presidential primary is, do we want this party to be big, or do we want it to be small? Kevin and Jared. Well, what I think you laid out is the difference between a primary election and a general election. Because you know, 40% in a primary election will probably win it for you if it's crowded. I mean, that's how Trump won the nomination in 2016. So you are able to divide a little bit. You are able to, you know, carve out your niche and just talk to your own people. And maybe you will win the uh, the the primary election. And then after that, you get to blame Mitch McConnell for not spending enough to save your ass. Jared. Yeah, I uh, like post-election, I can't figure out who is and isn't the rhinos anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. like, oh, uh, oh, you know, my who is and isn't the establishment. Yeah, uh. I mean, it, like, I have no idea. Like, it, uh you know, a, a few years ago, you would have looked at Ron DeSantis and said, like, he falls more into that kind of Trump populist type group. Founding member now. of the Freedom Caucus. Yeah, <laughs> right. And now everybody who's, like, just not Trump is a rhino somehow. So it's like this weird sort of, like, infighting that's going on. One of the things I, I'll say about DeSantis, too, that I thought was interesting, he, uh, late in the election, rallied with Lee Zeldin in New York. And yeah. although Zeldin didn't win... A lot of credit has been given to him to run at the, uh, you know running really strong at the top of the ticket and carrying some of those races in New York, which uh, seem like they're going to be pretty important to Republicans now carrying the House. And so, DeSantis obviously crushed it in Florida. I think Joe mentioned, I mean, a one point win, if that, four years ago, and now a twenty point win. I think his ability to maybe run with some of these other people outside of florida especially if you look at a state like new york which is going to be a blue state but to have that appeal to those voters i think he presents the party with a really interesting opportunity again this the question is is you know who has got the the key to the to club or who's running security at the club uh nowadays and 
I think the party's going to have to figure that out. You know, on this on this issue of what what DeSantis did, despite being on the ballot, he did travel the country campaigning yeah. mm-hmm. for people like Lee Zeldin and a lot of others. And in his appearances, he made it all about them. You know, the one thing about the DeSantis events was it was all about the candidate that he was there to help. But when Trump went in in the last week of the election, it was all about Trump. And when he went into Pennsylvania, for instance, uninvited, my understanding, by the way, from talking to people who were hanging around uh, the Dr. Oz campaign in Pennsylvania, is that when Trump decided to do a last-minute rally there right at the end in Pennsylvania, they freaked out because they knew they couldn't get out of it. But if you listen to what Dr. Oz was saying for the for the last several weeks, it was we need balance in Washington. Mm-hmm. We need to throw out the extremes. We need to have right. you know problem solving and and working together. And then Trump comes in and completely <laughs> obliterates his entire message and reminded all those independents in Pennsylvania that despite what Dr. Oz is saying, he's mine. I mean that was the message. Yeah. And all those independents fled and voted for John Fetterman, who I'm sorry remains another terrible candidate. And so that's the difference. DeSantis went in for others and made it about them. Trump went in for himself and made it about him. And the Republicans paid the price for it, I think. And that sounds almost exactly the same as what Trump's rally in January or end of December, January 2021 in Georgia. He went in there to North Georgia, told them your votes don't count, but please go vote for these two Senate candidates. And what did we come away with? Another big Senate loss. Let's talk about another situation that is brewing right now. So we're recording this podcast. By the way, thank you for listening to Flyover Country. Kevin, Sean, Jared, and Joe. Scott Jennings here uh, recording on Monday night following the election. But we are recording before the House and the Senate make their leadership decisions. And as we sit here tonight, I guess we are relatively comfortable that the Republicans are going to win the House majority. How comfortable are we that Kevin McCarthy is going to be the speaker? I feel like he's going to get it. Anybody in here have a dissenting view? I'll dissent. I see, dissent. Some, I see some head shaking. Kevin's dissenting. Sean, Joe, anybody? What are they saying up in Washington today, Joe? Oh, we were we were at Top Golf. <laughs> <laughs> That's where politics happen, isn't it? Exactly right. No, we. I, I had not heard a thing up here and and uh, about Kevin McCarthy's state, other than the fact that I guess I guess what Andy Biggs, you hear his name, yeah, that, uh, that might be throwing it out there. Just throw, I think people just want to make put him through the ringer, make him feel some pain before he ultimately prevails. Yeah, why would we? Do, why would we do anything that would you know? Unify the party. They they you know. tried to put him through the ringer a couple last time he did this in 2015, and you know what? It worked. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. I've I've talked to a few members of Congress who think McCarthy is going to make it. Although I read the demands that are being made <laughs> at him by yeah. the by the Freedom Caucus types. Well, uh, he's a rhino now too. This is a guy who spent like the last six years at Mar-a-Lago, like yeah. every other day, yeah. and now all of a sudden he's a rhino too. It's like. But these, these demands they're making of him and all these rules changes, it's like, you know, basically we want you to put your head in the guillotine and let us hold a string. Yep. And that's how you're going to live your life is every day you're going to look up and wonder if the blade is going to fall. And I just don't know how you can agree to that. Now, the difference between McCarthy and McConnell is McCarthy has to get 218 votes on the floor of the House. And McConnell just has to win an election inside of his own conference, uh, which I believe tonight he has the votes. Uh, and let's talk about that. Mitch McConnell uh, returning as the Republican leader. There are people out there trying to delay, as we record this tonight, the Senate leadership election. I don't think they're going to be successful. Some voices have come out today. Uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, mm-hmm. Tommy Tuberville of Alabama has said he does not want to do that. He's for McConnell. So it seems to be a small group of people who want to delay 
But the best quote about the entire thing came from Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who got asked about it today, and he said, quote, in order to be the man, you've got to beat the man, channeling an old Ric Flair quote that he used to use in professional wrestling all the time. Did you see Ric Flair tweeted, 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 like, yeah. tweeted And also yeah, said, yeah. woo! <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so the, the truth is, it doesn't look to me like they even have a candidate right. to oppose Mitch McConnell. Right. Rick Scott is, is not ruling it out. But given the debacle, I can't even imagine Rick Scott uh, has more than just a handful of people. If he would have run the Republican conference the way he ran the NRSC, I mean, I don't think anybody wants that. Joe Arnold? And it appears that Rick Scott, as far as what you are hearing in D.C., did not – he was certainly trying to sway and brings people along his way of thinking. Rick Scott, as we can see in the election, has a hard time swaying anyone any direction. And uh, he basically is not – is not, he appears to have abandoned that that quest. So just in terms of what's going on in D.C., there is a, a conference lunch, you know, the Republican conference meeting on Tuesday. Yep. Uh, but maybe by the time this podcast is posted, and at that point they'll discuss actually what happened at the midterms and go from there. Now that said, you know, it's 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 a hard pill to swallow, right, as far as the election. And I'm, I'm certain there are some people who are going to have some strong opinions. But we all know Mitch McConnell, and he's someone who can – be as uh, sober as anyone in terms of being able to let people have their say and get it out of their system and then move on. There are people there are people who do things and they show that they want to be senators. There are people who do things and they show that they want to be running for president of the United States. Mm. All of the people who are coming out here trashing on McConnell, wringing their hands, saying, oh, we need to delay for a few days, they have no interest in really being in the U.S. Senate. All of them have either run for president in the past or have toyed around with it in the future. Uh, and so I think ultimately that is that is what you're seeing play out uh, in, in this little proxy war. One of the people on television who I see sort of leading this charge against McConnell, he says, quote, on behalf of his constituents is a man who has no constituents, Blake Masters, the failed <laughs> candidate. Uh, is for you or is you ain't my constituents? Yeah, he he was on uh, Fox the other night saying we have to throw Mitch McConnell out. And I guess he was complaining that Mitch McConnell hadn't spent enough money to get him elected. Now, you go back, Masters' candidacy had the following evolution. He had Peter Thiel, the big tech donor, fund his primary with $15 million. And then he got Trump's endorsement, which kind of yanked him over the line. By the way, Arizona was so botched. The best candidate would have been the governor, Doug Ducey. Trump made life so difficult for Ducey that he decided not to do it. The next best candidate would have been the attorney general, Bernovich. But, and he, he's sort of, you know, one of these arch conservative types, except for one thing. He would not tell Donald Trump that the election was stolen. That's it. His yeah. only sin was to say was he wouldn't bend the knee on the 2020 election. So Trump winds up tapping Blake Masters, who was all in on election denialism. So he gets gets the nomination. We now hear in the postmortems that he was one of the worst testing candidates that some high-level Republican operatives had ever seen in focus groups. The McConnell operation decided to focus its resources on the core states like Wisconsin, which we won, North Carolina, which we won, hey. Ohio, which we won, hey. instead of <laughs> instead of taking a flyer on somebody who was probably one of the two or three worst Republican candidates of the cycle. And so now Masters is out on TV complaining about McConnell. But wait, but wait, my question is this. If he's such a good candidate and he's so great and he was so close to winning, why didn't Donald Trump 
spend another 10, 15, 20, 25, 95 million because that's what he's got in the bank on Blake Masters. He could have done that. And I just find this whole thing to be a complete and total farcical, ridiculous circus that they're trying to pull here, blaming everyone but themselves for their problems, Kevin. Senator McConnell and his aligned super PAC spent almost $400 million on this election. The fact that you didn't get enough, I mean, decision, even with $400 million, and I think the uh, National Review editor said it really well today, even with $400 million, you have to make some choices at some point. And some of those choices aren't easy. Uh, but, Scott, you listed off, off all the states that without the investment from Senator McConnell's PAC, we probably wouldn't, wouldn't have won. And the Republicans would be even in a worse shape. So he made the decisions and people can gripe about him. People can disagree with him even, but these are, those are the States that because of SLF, they were able to overcome poor candidate fundraising or a very well-funded opposition and eke out a win. You just raised an issue that I think the party is going to have to deal with in the, in the years ahead. And that is candidate to candidate fundraising. If you look at the chart in all these major Senate races this year, Yes, McConnell and his affiliates spent almost $400 million, but that money is less efficient. Yep. The most efficient money you can spend in politics, and by efficient I mean most bang for your buck, the most advertising for your dollar, comes right out of a candidate committee. And the, the Democrats raise vast sums of money into their candidate committees. And we had a bunch of people running this year on the Republican side that just didn't. Right. Uh, Masters in Arizona did not. J.D. Vance, although he won in Ohio, he had to be bailed out by McConnell, Ted Budd, uh, who ran, I think, a pretty good race, but you know, I think we even spent almost $40 million yep. down there in North Carolina. One of the things the party's going to have to grapple with is how do you get more money into the hands of the actual candidates and not be so over-reliant on these outside groups? I think the outside groups have their place, and they're certainly effective when, with what they do, but they're supposed to be supplemental. They're supposed right. to be air cover. And the campaigns themselves are supposed to have some heft. But in this cycle, Sean, we had lots of campaigns that were just shells yeah. of what you would expect a big campaign I mean, to be. Some Republican senatorial candidates didn't raise half the money that the Democrats raised and spent in, in some of these races. And it's a real shame. It's like a hub and spoke sort of deal. You know, the, the candidate is supposed to be the driver. And, you know, these IE groups and everybody else, party committees come in and, and provide ancillary cover. But... I mean, at the end of the day, it looked like the candidates just we're not we're not only bad on the campaign trail, mm. but also we're bad from a fundraising perspective is that people didn't really have enough confidence in to give them five, 10, 15 bucks here and there. Other highlights. Uh, oh, Joe, go ahead. And it didn't help at all that in the midst of all the uh, all of that, that Donald Trump was raising money on the candidates backs and, and giving them a pittance of the overall take. I mean, so that, that you can't ignore that factor that, that Trump not only was undermining the the campaigns from a messaging standpoint he also was literally undermining them from a money standpoint on on this point joe there was a story today about how uh, herschel walker's campaign has now asked every candidate that's trying to help raise him money and also donald trump to please stop trying to help him raise money in the way that you're doing where you take 90 percent of the dollars raised right. yeah uh, and only give me give me uh 10 because i need the money now uh, to right. win this well, election this happened in arizona i mean right you know during the election trump was sending out solicitations for masters in arizona but if you look at the fine print it was like 95 percent to trump five percent to masters and now you have masters on television with the audacity <laughs> to complain about Mitch McConnell when Donald Trump was literally milking him, you know, uh, you know, during the election, and 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 I just I I got to tell you that the deceitfulness post-election 
and the absolute amateur hour arguments that are being made is is a good when when Connell this summer talked about candidate quality. I mean, I think he was actually talking about quality of human beings. <laughs> and and here's the thing about campaigns. They tend to be pretty revealing about who you are. And it's obvious the people of Arizona found out who Blake Masters was, and that's why he wasn't successful. I wanted to, to go to a few other election highlights for me uh, this year, and also wanted to get your all's thoughts on this. A few other people that I think deserve recognition. DeSantis has gotten the lion's share of the post-election attention from the Republicans. But let us say a word. For Georgia Governor Brian oh, yeah. Kemp in Georgia. Now, the Senate race is going to a runoff, but the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, won re-election over Stacey Abrams. He's now beaten her twice. Mm-hmm. This is a man who has stood up to Donald Trump. He stood up to the Abrams machine. He stood up to the national media. He has stood up to the corporations. He stood up to the left. He stood up to the right. This guy has got a spine of steel, Kevin Grout, and I just think something's going to happen with Brian Kemp. I don't know if it's 2024. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But Brian Kemp is exactly the kind of rock-solid citizen you need in a political party. He's a leader. He has a mission. He has a plan. He's obviously got a good team uh, of, of technical people and tacticians that have built a really good campaign. But I think Brian Kemp, to me, I know DeSantis is, is the shiny object, and, and believe you me, I'm all for DeSantis if he wants to go for it. Uh, right now. But I think there's something to be said about what Brian Kemp did and how he did it. Totally agree. And it it all comes down to he ran his race and he put aside, you know, ancillary things. He didn't get distracted. It reminds me a lot of what Glenn Youngkin did last year. Absolutely. Other people tried to to tell him how to run his race and he just pushed it aside. I mean, you saw lots of governors out there. We've obviously talked about DeSantis, but Mike DeWine up in in Ohio really ran up the score there too, even when there was a a close Senate race. Uh, Governors across the country, I mean, there's only been one governor who didn't win re-election and that's because the Republican Lombardo took him out in Nevada. But uh, there are a lot of great governors out there who, you know, might not have gotten big headlines, but they ran their race, they ignored what they need to ignore and they they came up big. i tell you another person who I think ran a, a pretty good race, I mentioned him just a minute ago, was Ted Budd, the Senate candidate in North Carolina who, you know, when the primary down there started, he was not the favorite. Pat McCrory, the former governor, was the favorite. And then Bud did wind up with the Trump nomination. He was one of the few people who actually got the Trump endorsement, but somehow managed to navigate around it in the general election. Now, North Carolina was a bit of a forgotten state. You know, the Democrats kind of left Beasley and sort of hung her out to dry. She was well-funded at the candidate level, but Obama did not do a rally there. And Schumer's outside group did not spend money. It was pretty close. But I, I do think we ought to have congratulations for Ted Budd uh, because he really, I mean, if you look at the at the close races on the map where Republicans had to hold, uh, Budd did a, a pretty nice job, I think, of just running a drama-free, no-frills kind of campaign in a year where generic Republican in a state like North Carolina was enough. And so they didn't try to... Didn't try to get cute about it. Didn't didn't throw too many, you know, hail marys. They just ran a kind of a uh, by the book campaign, and it paid off for him, Sean. Yeah, and and I think the one other thing that I think we should mention about Brian Kemp is the type of operation that he built down there that was attached to his campaign, which is data and field oriented. Mm-hmm. Like he had an actual victory program uh, that outworked Stacey Abrams for all her millions of dollars that she swindled from small dollar donors to then give to her best friend that ran a, a law firm to bail her out. So I just think I think that he deserves a lot of credit for the type of 21st century digital operation that is now going to be uh, handed over to help Herschel Walker get across the finish line. I don't think you should yeah. be slandering the president of Earth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Emperor. Emperor. 
Uh, I mean, I'm just saying, she's got stuff at her it, disposal. Kevin? It, it, one yeah. more. Eric Schmidt in Missouri ran another one of these great races. I think, you know, once he got the nomination, which was a, a hard fought, you know, he had to share the Trump endorsement with another Eric out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but w- once he won the nomination, he knew he wasn't going to get a lot of national help, but he, he ran his race and he kept it Missouri in a red state like it needs to be. Jared? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, a lot of these just kind of comes back to candidate quality, right? I mean, we've mentioned Glenn Youngkin the last couple of years, obviously had the Trump endorsement. Kemp, if you had said a couple of years ago somebody got that much you know, vitriol and hate from Trump, we would never would have imagined him winning, and he, he sort of ran away with that. I don't think Stacey Abrams ever led in a single poll. But they ran good campaigns, right? They did all the things that we always talk about candidates need to do. They didn't get caught in the weeds. They didn't, you know, lay blame to to anybody or, or any party or any anything like that. They just ran good campaigns in a year where Republicans could do that. Uh, and so, again, I think it sort of sets this interesting playbook for like what Republicans can do in 24, uh, regardless of if Trump is sort of on your side or not on your side, or if you're more like Trump, if you're more MAGA, if you're, you know, more of the establishment, but like just run a good campaign. Don't get caught in the weeds, run on the issues, talk about the things that matter to, you know, independent voters and you can win. It's not, you know, like we, we sort of make it sound simple, but to some degree it kind of is that simple if you're a good candidate, you know? I also well, it was like simple. To, oh, go ahead. It was Joe, simple, Scott, going into all this. It was simple that if this was a regular midterm and it came down to being a referendum on Joe Biden, then Republicans would probably fare better. Donald Trump insisted upon making it a referendum about him. So he was on the ballot as a result. He lost. And it's time. It's time to cut bait. It's time for Republicans to rally around and say, fine, this is it. And I know that people are afraid to do that. I know that there are too many people who are too loyal or, you know, to Trump and among the electorate that were afraid to say these things. Donald Trump needs to be cast away. It's I mean, it's, it, 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 this this is the time. I mean, he is the weakest candidate you can think of. He just lost. He he had a chance. He insisted upon putting himself out there. You You raised the term referendum and. That was really the Republican argument for most of the midterm, was this should be a referendum on on Biden. And as you correctly pointed out, Trump insisted on, on doing something else. And I think the Biden White House does deserve some credit for trying to keep the focus on Trump. Uh, and, and I have to say, I'll just tell you a little anecdote. As I was sitting there on election night on the set, and they have people that come out and hand you the, the exit polls before they, they come out on TV. And... So, you know, you get these exit polls and it's like state by state. And so you're like, look, Georgia, Pennsylvania, you know, the big states. And it's like Joe Biden approval rating, you know, 44. Uh, You know, are Joe Biden's policies helping or hurting? And 50 percent said hurting and only 30 percent said helping. And you've got 75 percent of the people saying they're angry or anxious about the future or state of the country. So as you're looking down these results... It's like, okay, that tracks, that tracks, that tracks, that tracks. So if you're a Republican, you're, you know, you're getting excited. And then you get down to the last one. Independent voters. How did you cast your vote head to head? And you see in all the Senate races, independents breaking for Warnock in Georgia, for Fetterman in Pennsylvania, for uh, uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, for Cortez Masto. And I thought I was taking crazy pills. I mean, I'm like, I've got these sheets of paper. And it's like, Biden sucks, economy sucks, direction of the country sucks. Everything in my experience tells me that independents should be breaking for the Republicans. 
They broke for the Democrats against the party in power in 06, against the Democrats in 10 against the party in power, in 14 against the Democrats, against the party in power, in 18 against Trump, against the party in power. But yet you get to 2022 and everything in your experience and everything in the data tells you this should not be happening. And then you look at that independent number and you see how Republicans lost the election. You look at individual House races. How many races did Republicans get to 47, 48, 49% of the vote? Like right up to the line, but they couldn't close the deal. Why is that? It's very obvious that there's a whole bunch of people who consider themselves to be independents, who have in various times in their lives considered themselves to be center-right or Republican voters, who just wouldn't do it. And so if there is a lesson here, It's that people do have a gut feeling about party branding and about candidate branding that, for some people, supersedes their cold feelings about the current president or the direction of the country. And if you don't think that's going to happen again in 2024, think again. The Republicans have a great map for the Senate, a lot of rural states. But if you throw out dog food that the dogs don't want to eat, you're going to have a problem again, Sean. What was the race, Scott, in the Pacific Northwest that you pointed to on Twitter the other day? The, the candidate that, that Joe Kent? Yeah. Talk so, a little bit about that race, for instance. So this is a race in Washington State. The incumbent Republican is Jamie Herrera Butler. You may have remember her as one of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. This is an extremely Republican district. It's like R plus 13. I mean, it should not even be on the board. Kent, with Trump's help, defeats Herrera Butler in the primary. And to give you an idea of how off the map this was, I think the 538 model gave Republicans a 98% chance of holding the seat just because of the district. The district is Republican. And that one got turned over to the Democrats because Kent is a wacko, an absolute wacko, who could not attract enough Republican votes and an R plus 13 seat to hold a seat that Republicans have had for a long time. And so what's the net of that? You lose Herrera Butler, who's a really solid member of the House. You lose the seat. You give the Democrats one. And now that person in 2024 will be running as an incumbent. We'll see what kind of person that is. But that there were there were House races like that, Sean, all over the country where Republican candidates just couldn't get over the hump all because of the anvil that Donald Trump is. Joe Arnold. Joe Biden won against Donald Trump in 2020 based upon basically getting off the crazy train. And and again, all we'd had on last week is the, the choice was crazy train or not. And, a crazy, and crazy train lost. So, I mean, if, if, if you want to keep on crazy train, support Donald Trump and endorse him for 2024. If not, then I'm just saying is this, it's, 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 this is the definition of insanity. Yeah, is just to continue well, to go down that path. Well, it's it, it it is historically you know weird for the Republicans to continue to go down this road. I mean, Trump got fewer votes in sixteen. He lost the House in eighteen. He lost the White House in twenty. He lost the Senate in twenty one, and a referendum on his attitude in twenty two helped Joe Bi- an unpopular Joe Biden, who is personally unpopular and as a policy matter unpopular, far outkick his expectations. What more do you need to see before you say? We may need a new quarterback, Jared. Yeah, I, I also think the party and candidates in the future have to realize like this story is not going to go away either. I think of, of Carrie Lake and uh, so much of the media attention I saw around her was it seemed like every time she stepped in front of a camera, she was asked about the 2020 election every single time, right? And so 
you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you if you thought voter fraud was an issue, it was like, ah, whatever, you know, okay. That's mm-hmm. a standard position of the right. Like, we want to crack down on voter fraud. Now, you can't just have that position. You can't have these kind of, like, Trump-like things because it's going to be your entire persona and the media is, is addicted to Trump. You can already see them being afraid that the party's going to get rid of him. They want to keep him because they love, you know, the attention that, that he gives. And they, they think he's probably the most beatable candidate, too. And so sort of alignment there with him or, or his positions, whether it be with, you know, the election or some of the real crazies who were saying January 6th wasn't bad, right? Uh, I think these candidates in the party has to realize that those sorts of things are not going to go away. And so you have to keep your candidates away from him and away from anything that sort of ties you to him. I think two things on this front that that are worth pointing out as we uh, come down towards the end of the show tonight. Number one, to your point about Trump not going away, there's going to be a huge number of Democrats who work really hard to make this argument. Well, you know, Ron DeSantis is worse than Trump. Oh, they already have. It's already starting. I was on TV the morning after the election with a guy from Michigan, uh, a fellow CNN commentator, and he was like, well, you know, DeSantis is just a more efficient (laughs) version of Trump. And I'm already seeing journalists and, and other, you know, media types and Democrat types who are saying, well... DeSantis is just just a bigger problem than Trump. Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, I saw him tweeting the other day. He said, as, as dangerous as it may be, and I may come to regret this, I really hope the Republicans nominate Donald Trump. And here's the thing. In this election, we talked about it on the show a few times, the Democratic Party invested over $50 million in election denier, wacko-type candidates. And by the way, the tactic paid off. Yep. I think they yep. won every race. Yep. So, tactically speaking, it was a sound decision. But if you don't think the impulse of the Democratic Party is going to be, let's do everything we can to get Donald Trump the nomination. I got news for you. It is going to happen because they're looking at the same results we are. And what Joe just said is true. They know Trump is going to be the weakest candidate, just like they knew Bulldog was going to be the weakest candidate in New Hampshire, just like they knew that guy in Michigan was going to be weaker than Peter Meyer, just like they knew, they knew, they knew. They now have a template. Let's help the Republicans with, you know, act on their worst impulses, and that will inure to our benefit. It may undercut Biden's message about democracy, which I, I still say is a moral matter. It really does. But as a tactical matter, you can see, Kevin, where they'd be headed in 2024. And it's going to start tomorrow. I mean, we're recording this Monday night, Tuesday. Donald Trump is a big, big major announcement. Many people think he's going to announce that he's running for president again tomorrow. I would not be surprised if Democrats start moving behind the scenes to make him the Republican. Now, we're, we're crapping on Trump a little bit on this show tonight, and I've certainly been negative on him since election night because it was obvious to me what had happened. But I'll tell you one mistake the Republicans cannot make here, and that is to try to do what Trump has done, and that's to try to excommunicate. Because if you're someone tonight, whenever you're listening to this, that believes, well, we got to move on from Trump, that's fine. But you cannot move on from the people who voted for Trump, because that was most Republicans. And it is true. There are new people in the party mm-hmm. who came because of Trump. There are working class voters. There, there, there just are new people in and around the Republican Party. Now, some of them, if their entire motivating animus is election denialism, and that's what they want the party's platform to be, probably better off without them. But there are a lot of people who just came because they saw Trump transforming the Republican Party into a more working class party. So to me, one of the lessons out of this election is you need a bigger party, not a smaller one. And so if the party is to transition away from Trump, it strikes me that it cannot do it at the expense of some of the new people that Trump has brought in. And it cannot be to repudiate everything 
Donald Trump did or stood for. Because I will say, his stance on immigration rallied a lot of people. His stance on tax cuts rallied a lot of people. His helping get three Supreme Court justices rallied a lot of people, a lot of Republicans across the spectrum. So, look, he did some things that virtually every Republican I know can appreciate. So I think what you have to do is you transition away from someone is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You can throw the baby out, but maybe we keep the bathwater and put the next baby in it <laughs> and go from there. I just, I don't, I, I, I think, I think you, you, you cannot have a civil war for the purpose, for the purpose of making the party smaller. You have to have a civil war, I guess, over the process of a presidential primary for the purpose of making the party stronger and bigger and more capable. Now, Who's going to make this hard? Donald Trump. If he doesn't get the nomination, Kevin, Jared, Joe, if he doesn't get the nomination, I mean, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who's going to accept that graciously <laughs> and just say, fine, everybody should get behind. Maybe, you know, hope springs eternal. Maybe right. he'll surprise us. But he he doesn't strike me as that kind of person, which is why I think the Republicans that do get this wrestle this away from him, if they are to do that, have to take extra care that they aren't running a party half the size as it used to be. That That is the real mid-term challenge, I think, for the Republicans here as it moves towards 2024, Jared. Yeah, don't turn the party into the Lincoln Project, you know, right? Like, you can sort of get back some of those never-Trumper, David French-type conservatives. Uh, and I think one that's one of the appeals of DeSantis, too, is he has that kind of true conservative authenticity while also appealing to that more working-class uh, voter that has a little bit more of that kind of populist-type brand in them, right? It, it doesn't have to go... To Mitt Romney, it doesn't have to, you know, go to what that sort of like again that kind of like never Trump type attitude. They can just say like, hey, we're moving on. We're a big tent party. We're we care about the, the the issues that the voters care about, right? Like it's it's not a it's not a particularly complex model. The the complicating factor is, is how Trump you know may deal with this or try to destroy the party from within or what he tells his voters to do or not to do. Uh, and so that's the kind of limiting factor for some of this. But, um, yeah, I mean, you don't, like you said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't, you know, don't get rid of everything, the things that have worked, right? This is what I think for us is concerning about, you know, the calls to remove McConnell. McConnell's the most steady hand in this party for, for decades and decades and has given them the success of the Supreme Court judges that they can run on, right? And so, you know, don't don't throw everything out. Don't Don't look to completely destroy everything that's worked. But... It may be time for a little bit of a new era. Before we go to Scene Red Herd and wrap up the show, where did we land as a group on our predictions? I'm going to start. <laughs> I'm going to start. Well, first of all, I guess we need to get Robert Blizzard back in here. And, yeah, he's to blame. And Robert, you know, who is who is our friend and friend of the pod, you know, who's traditionally in every election I've ever been in with him, very, very, you know, downplays expectations. He was quite bullish on everything. But I think it's because he was expecting the independents to behave the way they have behaved, you know, really for the entirety of his career. So I, I get it. My my expectations were, I thought, I was really more bullish on the House. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, by the time the election came, I was really in 30-seat territory. I was, and, and honestly, it wasn't even the polls. It was where the Democrats were spending money. It mm-hmm. struck me that they were at the Alamo. And, I, and I'm going to say, there are some people on TV right now saying, well, I saw this coming. Look, if you talk to any Democrat operative the way I was because of my media work, they all were expecting... An ass whooping. I'm telling you, every single one of them was expecting 
to be shellacked, and, and it wasn't even going to be close. So there's, you know, for, for people out there saying they were the amazing Kreskin or whatever, I mean, <laughs> look, I'm just telling you, that the, the, the expectation among the Democrats was that they were going to get shellacked. Now, I was always more circumspect on the Senate. I was always more 50-50 on the Senate. And I always, the big three were Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania. I felt the best about Nevada, then Georgia. And I just, I was always really nervous about Pennsylvania because I got the feeling there was something about Oz they didn't like. That turns out to have been a, a fairly decent barometer, although Herschel is still alive. And as we sit here, Laxalt is dead. Kevin, where did you land on your uh, predictions? Yeah, I, I don't know if I said they were going to call it, but I said I would stay up late to watch Washington, and I stayed up late, but they called that one really early. Yeah, and I've seen some people crowing on Twitter, like, who knew that Chuck Schumer's opponent was going to do better than uh, uh, Tiffany Smiley <laughs> in Washington State? Sean, where'd you land? Yeah, I think I said 52 in the Senate, yeah. and I think I had a sleeper uh, race being Colorado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Joe yeah. Day fell a little short. And Jerry, so, where'd you land? Yeah, I think I said that Oz would win night of the election. That they, would call, that they would call Pennsylvania for Oz night of the election. Now, I was right that they did call Pennsylvania night of. You know, they still count those ballots. But, yeah, that one was another one that was surprisingly over quick. I thought we would have to wait a little bit. Joe, where'd you land on yours? I was wrong on because I predicted that the control of the Senate would come down to a runoff in Georgia. I presumed basically this was based upon – uh, Cortez Masto being a terrible candidate in Nevada and Adam yeah. Blacksall being able to prevail there. If that had happened and that was close, then I would have been on track. Uh, but other than that, of course, we were, I think, I don't know if anybody predicted what it went. That said, um, you know, Scott, even though you were predicting, well, ultimately, uh, when we came back around to it, a Republican majority, you know, on, on first blush, when you first went through your analysis last week or two weeks ago, you were still saying 50-50. Yeah. You know, so that's, you know, where we were. Well, I will tell you on, on Nevada, and, and I don't know Laxalt. I know some of his people. And I had gotten the impression just from talking to folks around the campaign that he was a better candidate than, say, Masters or, or Walker or Oz. In retrospect, you know, was that true? I don't know. I mean, you know, Laxalt was uh, a Trump candidate, although... You know, he also had other elements of the party behind him as well. And there are people in Nevada who were like, look, you guys totally missed this. Laxalt is really no better of a candidate than, than anyone else. I don't know what the truth is. Uh, I do know this. Democrats apparently have a, a get-out-the-vote machine in Nevada that, uh, you know, people attribute to, to former and late Senator Harry Reid uh, that's quite formidable. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's something that the Republicans are going to have to contend with in the future. Uh, let's wrap up the show this week and do a little scene read her. Joe Arnold, you want to start us off? You got any uh, midterm or non-midterm uh, material you want to bring to the show? I want to give you my Washington, D.C. travel log, scene read her. <laughs> okay, How long are we going to be here, here for? And I did take a, what's that? How long are we going to be here for? 45 seconds. Okay. So if you go down Constitution Avenue and basically along the mall uh, at the, at the, uh, near the World War II Memorial, for the longest time, I've seen a, like a stone building there on the corner of Constitution Avenue, wondering, what is that for? What kind of a shack is that? As it turns out, it's, it's the lockkeeper's house. The lockkeeper's house. house. The lockkeeper. Yes. For the canal that George Washington originally envisioned and wanted built to begin there, at, that was the eastern terminus, and it would ultimately have gone all the way to Pittsburgh. But that was the canal, and there was a, there was a lockkeeper there, the, 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 the canal lock. And that, there used to be a canal that ran all the way through there, and that was going to be 
you know, big motor transportation. And then the locomotives came around and ruined all that plan anyway. But it was, it's a, it's a great, but I didn't know is actually now a <laughs> national park service yeah. Yeah. Uh, destination. You can go there inside there now. And there's a great volunteer we met uh, over the weekend from who works at the library of Congress. And he was in there and just was a tremendous uh, window into the early 19th century. So the lock keeper's house on constitution Avenue, just uh, kind of go toward the West from the world war II Memorial. You'll see it. I love it. I love your stories. First, the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs <laughs> came. Very good. Sean Southern seen red and heard. So uh, Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I read something that I think is going to be of particular interest to one Kevin Grout today. Okay. Oh. And I'm just going to say Lizzo is coming to oh, Lexington. it's about yes. damn time. <laughs> and I know he is, uh, he is the biggest fan of Lizzo. So I thought. Uh, Do you may- have tickets yet? I figure we could probably all chip in and get him a ticket. I was waiting for you guys to buy me some tickets. How much does it cost to go to a Lizzo? Well, so it's it's in Rupp Arena, so uh, it's it's going to be a a hot hot ticket. It's going to be three hundred bucks. Three hundred bucks, maybe. Who knows? For a decent, I think we should all chip in. I think I think we should all go as a group. And and we and we can give you give you like a little like flute to take with you, so you can then present it to Lizzo. Good, and she can play it there for you. That's amazing. Does the lockkeeper have a secret flute? In there, Joe, that Lizzo can yes. stop by and play. <laughs> no? It's a crystal flute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. All right, good. Good call out, Lizzo. We'll see if we can get Kevin down to Lexington. Jared. Yeah, I've been watching on HBO. This is a documentary that started in 2020, and now part two is is airing now. The Vow. If anybody knows the story of Nixium, the... Oh, I've pers- listened to this podcast sort of professional development organization oh, turned yes. sex cult. Oh, my God. Uh, that podcast is wild, dude. It is. So Holy cow. part one, I think, is nine hour-long episodes, and it's fascinating. It's long. We haven't been watching it for a couple weeks now. Um, and now part two that is, is currently airing. I think the newest episode came out last night. Um, this is a pretty well-known story. I think most people, like, if you if as, as soon as you get into it, you're like, okay, yeah, I know. I remember this happening. Um, but a fascinating look into like a like cult life basically is my memory correct did did this dude that ran that cult like use a branding iron on these women yes yeah so keith rainier is the the top guy who's he i mean he's like oh man out of a movie cult leader guy and that he dates multiple women he's like a manipulator and a womanizer and i mean he is like also kind of looks like jesus a little bit i mean he's just like how do you know Allegedly, <laughs> uh, I'm just asking. Um, Were you branded? No, I mean it, it's it, it's a crazy, crazy story. Like just his, his story. I mean it's 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 really, really crazy. But the documentary is incredibly. This well is done. on HBO Max. Yes, yeah. So yeah. again, the first part one aired in 2020, so you can watch all of that. And now the part two is is airing now, and sort of takes you through the trial uh, for him and, and his associates. Um, fascinating, incredibly well done, and just unlike any other documentary ever, the, the detail, the story they're able to tell, the amount of people who are a part of it, um, the amount of footage they have of this guy from his seminars and his speeches, and the way they're able to paint this picture of like the manipulation from day one to it, it's incredible um, because he they filmed like everything. Uh, Did that start in Canada? 
They had a branch in Canada, but yeah. Alb- Albany is is where they they were out mm-hmm. of. But they had, I mean, they were they expand all over the world. This guy has still has supporters too. This is he. Unbelievable. <laughs> final thing on this, he's he's currently in jail at this part in the documentary. There's women who will dance outside of his like jail cell, like on the street for him. Lord have mercy. It, it it is it's like a Hollywood movie, but it it's it's all real. The branding the. It's yeah, it's but but highly recommend. It's very well done. All right, weird cult. Good yeah. job. Okay, <laughs> Kevin Grout. Uh, season five of the Netflix show The Crown came out. We've been watching that, and every episode, I'm just so proud to be an American. Glad we got rid of all that. <laughs> uh, we have to make an announcement on the pod. We're on Baby Watch. We are on Baby on Watch. Yes. Kevin, we're we're coming down the line to the line. Yeah, I've been frantically checking my phone. Any any minute now, we are in that territory for uh, little boy Grout to be here. It would have been sort of incredible had you missed the birth of your child in order to record this podcast. I probably would have run out of here and you would have heard a lot of <laughs> <laughs> as I left. But uh, it's been a good story, though. <laughs> yeah. right. That's amazing. We had to get that baby in here on the pod at some point. Uh, it reminds me, though, of you know the, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal ran <laughs> in 1832 and 1870. That's how I was planning on getting to the hospital, Joe. I was going to canal there. Amazing. All right. My scene red herd, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, have a couple of things I wanted to call out uh, here, and the first is uh, just before election week coverage started on CNN, I was up in New York doing a show, and I got to meet kind of an icon of broadcasting, Bob Costas, who's a longtime sportscaster, really a legend, but worked at KMOX in St. Louis, one of the uh, favorite radio stations of Joe Arnold and myself because of their affiliation with the St. Louis Cardinals, and this guy could not have been nicer. I posted a picture of him on my social media but i i walked backstage back behind the video panels of this thing to go out and he was coming off and i said oh my god it's bob costas and he goes oh my god it's scott jennings and uh and you know he watches a lot of cnn and we just had and i told him how big of a cardinals fan i was and this guy could not have been nicer and so i just wanted to say nice to meet you bob costas second thing i i saw this week um i i spent the entire week sitting next to anderson cooper and then I spent Saturday night several hours on TV with Wolf Blitzer. And I just wanted to say what an honor it is to be around absolute legends like that who were total pros. Um, when I was a kid and all I wanted to be was a radio broadcaster, I did do radio for a while. Just CNN and people like that, those were my heroes. You know, you turn it on. They're giving you the news, and you just somewhere in the back of your mind think, could I ever, could I ever find myself anywhere near people like this? And to sit at CNN for an entire week next to Anderson Cooper and watch him do what he does uh, was just remarkable. I also met uh, last week Doris Kearns Goodwin, who stopped by one of the nights, and they plopped her in a chair next to me. Now, I didn't get to do anything with her on the air. She was being interviewed by Anderson, but the way the set works, I was sitting right next to her, but just off camera. I kept trying to like stick my face or foot into this <laughs> shot, but they, uh, they, they, uh, they taped me down, but she could not have been nicer. Doris Kearns Goodwin, they popped her up there. She's a small person, but they popped her up there in the chair and she did a, a cool interview with Anderson and we had a nice little chat off the air. And, uh, and that was also cool. So anyway, my scene red herd was just kind of appreciation for some of the people that I've met over the last couple of weeks as we came down the wire of a very anxiety-inducing midterm, a strange midterm, 
a midterm that I'll always remember for the independents who misbehaved uh, and did not act like we expected them to do, and a midterm where potentially the Republican Party turned the corner and uh, changed direction and tried to turn itself back into a party that could win a national election. That's going to do it for Flyover Country with Scott Jennings this week. For Kevin, Sean, Joe, and Jared, I'm Scott. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Please recommend us to your friends. Please put us on social media if you like what you heard. Give us those good reviews, and we'll keep making shows for you here with an eye on politics from Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.